good to see you here this morning, and uh, we're continuing in our series working through the book of Galatians, and I know for myself personally, it's been a blessing just working through this book and just chapter by chapter, just seeing so many great topics bring themselves to surface, and uh, this, this morning we're talking about the, the topic of the law, and you can see the, the title there, What's Up With the Law?, and that's the, the idea that we're going to talk about, addressing some different questions related to that. But I was thinking this week of, uh, even in context of our text this morning that we're in Galatians 2, uh, how many times we can think back in our lives how we've had to, or found ourselves adjusting our behavior because of what we think someone else, another believer, might think about us based on our behavior. How the tendency to adjust because of the way somebody else might view us. And we're going to see an example of that in the text. And I was doing a little bit of an informal uh, poll, if you will, this week, just talking to different people about, man, ha- have you found yourself adjusting your behavior based on what you think other believers might think? And it was interesting to see a variety of responses from the, the choices of, of car that we drive to choices of, of, of maybe how we respond to Super Bowl commercials in a group as opposed to by yourself. Maybe the, the question is how, uh, feeling uncomfortable, maybe spending time at a sports bar with old friends, maybe in fear of, of somebody seeing you there. Like the, you see, we, we have this tendency to adjust our behavior based on the fear of others, and potentially even other believers, what they might think about, the, what they might think about us. I think the root issue of that, that problem is maybe a misunderstanding of the role that the law plays in the life of a believer. And so this morning in our text, we're going to go through four different questions we're going to try to tackle. And this isn't an exhaustive list of everything related to the law in the Bible. If you want that, Bob Cochran wrote a book called The <laughs> Law in the Bible. Uh, but, um, uh, but this morning, hopefully address some, maybe some, some things. I know in my own study this week with the different questions we're going to tackle, it was, it was re- refreshing just to unpack some of what God's Word teaches about His view of the, the, the law and how it relates to us as Christ followers. So let me pray for us as we begin, and then we're going to dive into Galatians 2. Dear Lord, we thank you so much, even for this time already this morning, to, to worship you and to uh, proclaim your, your worth and your greatness. We love you. We just want now, uh, just for you to, to put the, the, the lights on, to turn on the lights in our mind as to what the proper understanding of the law is and what that's supposed to look like in the life of a believer, not in a condemning way, but in a, in a guiding way. I just pray that you'd speak to us through your word, that, there'd be, uh, that I would be small and that you would be great. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, first thing we're going to look at, if you want to turn with me to Galatians 2, we're going to start in verse 11. And the first question that we're going to tackle is this. Why is confrontation necessary under grace? Why is confrontation necessary under grace? If we're all like, hey, we're under the the grace umbrella, why would you even ever need to confront somebody in in an area of, of sin? Let's take a look at verse 11 of chapter 2 in Galatians, it says this, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Wow. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. 
so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Let's pause there, just unpacking that question a little bit. If you haven't realized this, in the life of a believer, it's a process of becoming more and more like Christ. There's some things that need to be peeled away to become more like him. Anybody attest to that? Anybody notice that in your life? That there's some the shedding of some layers of old self that needs to come off. But the truth is, is in that process, while in that process, the potential for hypocrisy is great. Where our actions haven't caught up with our beliefs and we pretend like they have. Our actions haven't caught up with our beliefs, and we try to pretend as if they have. The Greek word for, for hypocrite, it's rooted in acting, where a mask was worn. A mask was worn, you see pictures there, was, a, a mask was worn to display either an emotion, well, happy or, or sad, or is to, to portray different characters, where they'd put on this, this mask and act differently. That was the, the root word for the word hypocrite. Is as it started, and the truth is, that's really the same today. That's really the same today. I was uh, reading a, a little description of an encounter that someone had with uh, Robert Redford, where they're in a hotel lobby, and an excited fan was so jazzed to, to see him there. And as he was getting on the elevator, the woman goes up to him and says, Are you the real Robert Redford? And as he's getting into the elevator, he, uh, as, as the door's closing, I thought it was interesting, his response only when I'm alone. Only when I'm alone. Are you the real Robert Redford? Only when I'm alone. You see, the, the truth is, is in hypocrisy, hypocrisy there's a, a something that's portrayed on the outside, but it's very different on the inside, right? And how much of the church is criticized because of that exact fact, right? Probably the biggest critique that our culture has with the church is saying, hey, you say one thing, but you do something completely different. That's the complaint that our culture has with the church. Although I did read a, a fun descriptor. It says, not going to church because of the hypocrites is like not going to the gym because of out-of-shape people. <laughs> the, the, the idea is that like we're, we're a work in process. We're a work in process. And that's what, what's happening here in the, the text is that grace, the Holy, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in shaping us is he uses people to call out the discrepancy in our life from what's claimed to what's actually lived out. That's grace. That's God's kindness. He uses the Holy Spirit to stir and nudge people to call us out in inconsistencies. In our text this morning, Paul's saying, you know what, I'm so committed to the church being consistent with their beliefs and actions that I'm going to call out somebody even if it's the Apostle Peter. Even if he wasn't too concerned about offense, it says that Paul opposed Peter to his face. At that time, Peter was considered the preeminent apostle, one of the foundational leaders of the church. And Paul saying, you know what? I'm so concerned with there being consistency between belief and action. I'm not really concerned about whether I have to call him out in front of the group. It describes, what does it say there? It says, uh, it says I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Wow, those are, those are strong words. Why was he condemned? What was, what was actually happening here? It says in the text exactly what was happening. Peter, when he first arrived, you see, Peter was visiting Antioch. The church is there. And, uh, and when he first arrived, it, uh, 
He was eating and having meals and having fellowship with Gentiles, which would, would have been anyone outside of the, 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 outside of the Jewish uh, culture, having meals with them. And, and in that, why is that such a big deal? You see, in that culture, meal wasn't like we do meals, like where you're in the, the fast food line, you eat as fast as you can, and you get back to all the, the checklist of things we have to do. A, a meal in that time period was a, 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 a long and drawn out process and a bonding effect that happened there up until that point prior to Christ like the there was direct commands in God's word that what that the Jewish people were to live separate they're supposed to be separate from the Gentiles why because they didn't want the Jewish people to adopt the uh, idolatrous habits and routines of of foreigners and so this idea of of uh, Peter eating and having an extended meal with Gentiles was frowned upon majorly in that time not to mention eating rules that they had. Like, think about that. Even, even the idea of something being prepared by a Gentile made it unclean. So he's breaking major customs of the, of the Jewish belief system by doing this. But the truth was, this wasn't something that, that Peter came up with on his own. In Acts 10, you guys might remember the, the vision that Peter was given. He was given this, this vision that three different times... God told Peter, you know what, there's, no, there, there's not clean and unclean. And you're to engage with the Gentiles. God's heart was to see that believers was under the umbrella of Jews and Gentiles. There wasn't to be separation. So Peter knew the right thing. He had the knowledge. It was great. It was a huge deal in the church. That was a huge deal that the, the gospel message was expanded to the Gentiles. Thank goodness for us, right? He knew the right thing. But what happened? He went back to the old way of living. He slipped back into the old routine despite knowing better. He withdrew from hanging out with the Gentiles. What does it say? Why? For fear. Because he was afraid of what? He was afraid of the circumcision party. Doesn't sound like much of a party to me, does it? But this group of people, which was, which was described, that was the Judaizers that we keep talking about, that they claim that they're from James, but they're later exposed to be liars. But out of fear, Peter said, you know what? Based on what they're going to think of me, I need, I need to pull away. I need to pull away from this new freedom that Christ, he knew Christ had specifically told him that he wasn't to do that. He, he went back into it. But I thought it was interesting that the reason that he went back into it, it wasn't because he was going to get arrested or was going to get put in prison, wasn't going to get beat up. What was the reason that he feared them? Just their, their verbal ridicule. The potential of them thinking more poorly of them. To me, I found some solace in that, that, that the, the, one of the founding church leaders, uh, he got wobbly knees. He got nervous at the potential of offending people, right? So many times, if we're honest with ourselves, we can slip into that too. We're like, ah, I don't know if I should do that. What are they going to think? What are they going to think? What's he going to say? What, what are they going to, like even in our workplace, we're so conscious of that because of what others might think. But even the apostle Peter was, was, uh, was uh, prone to that. And so the, the threat of them saying something poorly about him moved him to this, this stinking thinking, if you will. That he bought into this, this same idea that those who act a certain way have more favor with God. 
And they're second-class citizens within the kingdom of God. That's the stinking thinking, is this idea that, you know what? If I have this, these certain behaviors, then God's going to be like, man, you're awesome. You're great, and you're, I'm going to hold you in higher regards as if there's a tier within the, within the realm of believers. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Second-class citizens? No. That's what he had bought into that belief. And then look at what had happened. It says that the rest of the Jews, even Barnabas had gotten sucked into this hypocrisy. The truth is, is that hypocrisy is contagious. There's a ripple effect, unfortunately, and it draws and it can suck us in. And before we know it, you can become a culture of hypocrisy. Become a culture of hypocrisy. But the truth is, God in in his kindness, before Peter's sin could cause more damage to the church, God used Paul to call him out in his junk. Remember me talking about that last week, how important it is to have other believers in your life that are willing to speak hard truth to you, like the importance of that? Well, God uses through the Holy Spirit, spurs Paul to say, you know what, Peter? I know you're the, you're the main dude, the head honcho, but I'm calling you out on this. You're condemned. Your actions are not consistent. And so what, what is the role, the, the question that I, that I started with out of, the, out of the gates? Why is confrontation necessary under grace? You can see it in your notes there. Confrontation helps shape believers and protects the church. It helps shape, shape believers. God uses confrontation in our life. A lot of times you can think back, uh, probably the, the most consistent confrontation if you're married comes from who? Your spouse, right? Call, calling you out on, on your stuff. But it's a blessing, and it can be a blessing in disguise. It, co- it does two things. Like I mentioned, it helps shape the believers and protects the church. Now we continue to, to look on and, and see as it continues. Another question that I believe is addressed in this text is, does the law even matter? Does the law even matter? Take a look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pause there. You ever wonder why the law is all of a sudden the bad guy? You you feel like so much in church world is like, Oh, the law, the law, the law. But who gave us the law? Wasn't Wasn't the law a good thing? Wasn't that given by God? I think it has to do with a misunderstanding. Why, why do, does it even matter? Yes, it matters. You can see in your notes there, I love this quote, the law has every right, it has to do everything to do with the role that the law plays. It says the law has every right to command you to love God, love your spouse, not covet, not steal or lie, but no right to save you and rescue you from your rebellion against the law. You, does that make sense to you? It has the right to call us out and to tell us the right way to live, but it has no right. It's kind of thinking of it in terms of a mirror. It shows you the problem, but it doesn't solve it. I thought it was interesting hearing a pastor by the name of Matt Chandler, who's out of Texas, a really gifted communicator. One of the things I've, I've tracked over the last couple of years is he discovered that he, had, that he has brain cancer, and he's been battling with that. And he, I loved his description of the law because he painted this picture. He says, the law is like an MRI machine. It shows the cancer, but no ability to solve it. 
It shows the cancer. You have, you have to, you have to, after you've discovered the problem, then you've got to start looking into treatment options. You know, is it, is it the uh, radiation? Is it chemotherapy? Is it surgery? Like it's not the, somebody that's diagnosed with cancer doesn't show up back to the MRI machine. That wouldn't make sense. That's similar, that's similar to what's, what, the, what the law, the role that the law plays. Many miss the joy of salvation by clinging to the diagnostic rather than running to the healer. Many miss the joy of salvation by clinging to the diagnostic rather than running directly to the healer. So we keep going back to it, we keep going back to it. But the problem is that the diagnostic always has the same conclusion. You're sick, you're sick. You're still sick. Oh, you're back again? You're still sick. You're still broken. You still are messed up. That's the problem with the law. But the truth is, where it keeps saying you're sick, Jesus, if we've embraced his death as payment for our sins, Jesus says just the opposite. No, you're not sick. I healed you. No, you're not sick. I I healed you. I took care of that. What I did on the cross resolved that problem. So why do we go back to the law? Why do we keep going back to it? The law, if we're honest with ourselves, the law can be comforting. It puts me back in control because I have a tangible means to measure my godliness when I'm doing it well. It's a tangible means to measure and be like, you know what, I'm doing all right. I'm I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing this. And so we, we like to go back to it because it's a control issue. We like to have reign and control over it. That's why we're so in love with the law. That's what the, why the Judaizers had such a hard time releasing it because it's all of a sudden out of their control. Does that make sense? But I read this text like this and I get a little bit confused. I'll be a, a little confession. I get a little bit confused about like, well, well, what in the world? Like we hear all the time, we hear that the God, like all these do's and don'ts, you don't have to, you don't have to do that when you're under grace. That's not, that's not part of the life of a Christian. But then you read in verse 14, it says their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So we realize that the gospel also has rules of conduct. How, what do you do with that? Anybody else wrestle with that before? Like, what, what, role does, what role does the law even play? How does that make sense? Like, if, if, if uh, outside of the gospel, if you're saying, you know what, you don't have to, uh, you, you're, you're free from these laws and from these rules. Well, the truth is, and this is, this is my way of, of understanding it, is that it is it, it, it is oh, excuse me it is covered under grace it all is covered under grace it's all covered under grace but the truth is is that the gospel shifts the law from condemning us to wooing us it shifts the law from condemning us to wooing us there's nothing left for us to do it's, it's, it's already done. What Jesus did on the cross, absol- it, it took care of that. So there's nothing left to, for us to do, but it goes back to its original intent where it maps out the best way to live. So there's nothing more that you have to do, but the law is still there to describe what is the best way to live. What's the best way to, to navigate this? That's why King David kept saying he loved the law. It was like he described it as like honey to his lips. That's the way he saw the law. It wasn't, it wasn't a condemning law. It was a wooing law. It was saying, listen, 
There's a, there's, if you go this way, it's much better. If you skip going that route and you go this way, it's going to save you and protect you from so many things. I love the expression, choose to sin, choose to suffer. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. It's going to protect you from so much. The law, when we actually see the design of the law appropriately, why wouldn't you want to follow it? Does that make sense? If, it's, if you really see if it sinks into our minds that like, hey, it's outlining the best way to live, why wouldn't you want to be under the law? Why wouldn't you be? a? It's not because you're having to do something. It's because, man, it's a law of love. Look at what, what he had said there in the, in the descriptor. It says, if you, though a Jew, live like gen, a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying, if you've been living underneath this, this law as Paul's presenting it as one of a wooing law, one, a law of love, why would you want to go back to it as a restrictive means, as a means to earn favor with God? Why It wouldn't make sense. Are you trying to pay for a debt already paid? Are you trying to pay for a debt already paid? That wouldn't make sense. It's a law of love. There's freedom with that. And Paul wants Peter to recognize that and not trying to pull people back under the old law. So the, is it, the, the question that I mentioned, does the law even matter? Absolutely. Absolutely it matters. It gives us the best way to live. It outlines, it maps things out clearly for, for us. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a gift to us. When you understand the law, it wouldn't make sense not to follow it. Next question, the third one in, I see in the text, is what is my relationship with the law look like? If it's such a good thing, what's my relationship with the law look like? Verse 15 says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were not were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. In other words, why on, why on an endeavor to be justified when you already are? So the question, what is my relationship with the law? The answer is, ding, 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 not guilty. That's my relationship with the law. I'm seen as not guilty. The outcome of this conflict between Peter and, and Paul was probably the most bold and clear statement on justification anywhere in the New Testament. The, de the definition you can see, I, I jotted it in your notes there. I love this definition of justification. The gracious act of God by which he declares a sinner righteous solely on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. The idea, the gracious act, it was by his grace that God that he declares us. He looks down, the God of the universe looks down at us. If we've embraced Jesus' death as payment for our sins, he looks down at us and says, not guilty. He declares us righteous, righteous, right before him. Righteous, as if I had never committed a sin. Allow that to sink in a little bit. I, I love the, the story of a, 
about a, a wealthy Englishman who, he, who bought a Rolls Royce. This was back before they had a shop in Thousand Oaks. But when they first came out, when they first came out, the Rolls Royce had these great claims of, of never breaking down. That was like, you know, that, that was the, the, the drawing factor to this, uh, this car and why people could uh, rationalize spending additional uh, money on that. And so this wealthy Englishman bought a Rolls Royce. He ended up taking it back to, to France when he moved. And um, uh, when, when he moved, he noticed, though, that the car was starting to have problems. It was starting to, to break down like every other car. So he contacted Rolls Royce and says, listen, uh, my, my car is giving me, giving me problems. So Rolls Royce sent a mechanic on a plane all the way to France came there, uh, addressed the issues with the car, solved it, got, back, got it back to a perfect working order. A couple months passed after that where the, uh, there's, there's no bill that came. There's nothing that was said about the expense of this, this repair. And so the, the wealthy businessman finally contacted Rolls-Royce and said, said listen, I, I had a, a repair done on it. I'm more than willing to, to pay for the, the repair on it. And the response from the Rolls-Royce company, I thought it was interesting, the response was, you know what? In a letter it came. We have no record of there ever being a problem with a Rolls Royce. So, 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 so this idea, this idea is the same, the same for, for us as a, as a believer. There's, there's no record. Uh, th- that's the way God sees us. He looks down, and, it, and it's not because he swept it under a rug and is ignoring it like the Rolls Royce company. But, but, but it was, it, it, the truth is, when God looks down, there's no record of any fall. That's justification. What a beautiful thing. No record of anything you have ever done. Not swept or under a rug. He takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it on your account. And takes all your sin and junk and puts it on the account of Jesus Christ. Places it on his whipped back on a cross. That's what happens with justification. That's why he's saying, he keeps going back to this idea. He's saying, no, it's not because of anything that we added to the equation. It's, and it's not like a, a moment of forgiveness. It's not like, yeah, I remember when I first prayed a, a prayer. It's an ongoing position of guiltlessness before Almighty God. It's an awesome thing. Look in the text as he describes it. He describes, first I thought it was interesting, he describes us. He says, uh, he says we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. <laughs> I, I love the camp that we fall into. It says, not meant as a, it's not meant as a slam, but because they had no law to guide them. So he's saying to them, he's saying, if Jews who were experts in the law weren't saved by it, how can we expect Gentiles who do not know it to live by it? Does that make sense? He's saying, listen, why, why would you expect that? And he, his, his point is, no one has ever come to Christ by their own endeavor. No one has ever come to God and, and, and become right before God by their own efforts. He's saying it doesn't make sense. Three different times in, that same, in one verse there, he repeats it. He says, uh, in verse 16, it says, not justified by works, but through faith in Christ. Justi- justified by faith in Christ, not by works. It says, by works, it says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times reiterate, reiterating this big idea. You can't come to God on our own merits. 
We can't come to God on our own on our own merits. Any attempts have always fallen. You've heard this for years and years within the church. But the truth is, is that merits are doing things back to this idea of what the law is. It's a mirror to the problem. The problem is who we are apart from Christ, not what we've done. There's, that's why in, in, in Romans 8.11, he says, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no longer seeing us, but strictly what Christ has done for us. And so my question for us, even if we're here and we are, can say, you know what, I've been following Jesus for years and years. I, I get that. But you know what? Similar to Peter, it's so easy to slip back into this, you know what, if I, if I just, this is going to earn God's favor. This is going to please him, allow him to be more pleased in me than he was apart from this action. But the gift is, and the truth is, our relationship to the law, and allow this to sink in. When he looks at you, he sees no record of sin if you're in Christ Jesus. What an awesome thing. I'll tell you what, that should, that should put an extra skip in our step, right? That should, that should be like, when, when, when somebody sees us and like, hey, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Are you kidding me? Like the almighty God doesn't see anything any condemnation when he looks down to when he looks down to us it's an awesome and beautiful truth so that's our relationship to the law not guilty but then how does this all work let's look at the last point here that i want to address in verse 18 how does grace work how does this whole grace thing even play out so it says in verse 18 for if i rebuild what i tore down i prove myself to be a transgressor for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified. I love this. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What a beautiful section of, of Scripture. He starts by saying, rebuild what is torn. Why would I do that? Why would I put back the laws that I've been set free from? Abandoning grace for the law? No thanks. No thanks. I'm not going back to that. What does it say? He says, I died to the law. The old me had to die. It had to be literally put to death. The old me was spread out on the cross. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. The verb used here is the perfect tension, which means that something that happened in the past that has continuing results in the present. I love that truth. Something that happened in the past, I was put to death, and it continues to, to be an ongoing result for us. I was put to death. That's the, the old me is done. We're not paying him back. Let this sink in for a second. We're not paying him back because he's still paying us. We're not paying him back because he's still paying us daily. But moment by moment, he's still paying us back. It's not like, you know what, I have this debt to him and I'm going to spend the rest of my days paying him back. How many of us approach life like that? Saying, you know what, if I, if I just do this, that'll, that'll be another notch towards paying him back. But, that, but that, that's not how, it's wor how it works. We're not paying a debt to Christ. We are indwelt by Christ. We're not paying a debt to Christ. We're indwelt by Christ. Remember last week I put up a slide. It said this. It says, God's pleasure in you 
is not based on your performance for him. God's pleasure in you is not based on anything that you're going to do. It's not like he's saying, wow, he did that today. Man, now I'm really pleased in him. The truth is, the opposite of that is God's pleasure in you is based on Christ's performance for you. It's not based on what you're going to do. It's not based on, you know what, if I just do this and I just pay him back, that then he's going to be pleased. We can't ever pay him back. And it's so easy. That payback mentality is what slips us back into a works mentality. Does that make sense? We can't pay him back. It's strictly based on his love and his grace. It's for Christ. It's not, it's not a believer living for Christ, but Christ living through them. That's how this whole thing is possible. The truth is, it's not like, all right, I got to go back to doing this law. It's, it's, it's more of an act of complete submission. Remember the, the picture that I, that I gave a couple weeks ago? I described my, our, our new addition to our family, Bailey, our, our dog, that at first like, put up a fight when the kids used to try to carry around. But eventually the dog is just kind of going limp and just lets the, the, the kids kind of have their way to it. Remember that picture? I think that's a, a beautiful picture. I brought up uh, an illustration. This is Fluffy the dog. And, and right now, like, Fluffy is, is very dead, right? Like, there, there's no life in this, in this dog. Like, there, there's nothing there. It's, it's dead. And in fact, it would be kind of creepy if Fluffy started getting up and doing something, right? Like, that, 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 would be, that would be a weird thing. But this picture of how it's supposed to work with grace is that Fluffy's dead, but Fluffy comes to life when me, as the, its master, I'm now Fluffy's master, comes in and, I, and I, start, I start moving through it. I start making Fluffy bark and talk, hi guys. You know, like that, that all of a sudden, like Fluffy is an awesome thing, right? All kinds of fun. Like bring the kids on. We're going to have a great time with Fluffy. And the truth is, I think that's the picture of God working through us. Like, we're, we're dead. We're, there, there's no point to us. The way that grace is supposed to work, it isn't Fluffy trying to say, like, you know what? I'm going to please my master. It's saying, let me, Fluffy, get out of the way. Let me uh, allow him to indwell me and work through me and do all the things he wants to do in me. Like, it's an awesome thing that God wants to do through us. That's the appropriate understanding of grace in the law. So we can quit trying to fix things and solve things and adjust things and tweak things and, 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 and do it all on our own. And we can say, you know what? I'm just going to get busy with allowing Jesus to do what he wants to do in and through me. I want him to indwell every piece of me. I don't want to try to do it. Anybody else ready to give up that, that whole Christianity of like trying to do it all on my own? Anybody else worn out by that? I'm done with it. I'm sick and tired of it. I would rather just say like, all right, God, you come in and dwell me. Do what you're going to do. Clinging solely to him. Clinging solely to what he's done on the cross. I have this picture in my office that I've had for a number of years. Somebody gave it to me because I, I commented on it. And it says at the bottom of this picture, it says, simply to the cross I cling. Simply to the cross I cling. That's the picture that I want my life to be marked by. 
I'm not clinging to my means of, of earning something or trying to do something to gain his, sim, his favor. Just simply to the cross I cling. That's all, that's, all I'm, that's all I'm doing. Let him come in, do what he wants through me. Let me be fluffy. I'm okay with that. It's a, a freedom in that, right? And so that's my prayer for us as a, as a church and as a, a community, that our understanding of the law would be exactly that. What's my relationship to the law? Guess what? Not guilty. You're innocent. You're, there's nothing seen, no, no blemish, no darkness, no junk that God sees. He sees strictly the righteousness of God. So my question for us is when our days are finally wrapping up, when our, when our, our life is coming to an end, the question is, where did we put our stock? Where did we put the, the basis? Did we put it on all the things that we did, all the attempts that we had to earn? Is that where we placed our stock? Or are we simply clinging to the cross in Christ alone, in Him? Like He's the one that's done, done it for us. Dear God, that's our prayer is we want it to be all about you. It's only by the basis of what you did on the cross for us. We're so thankful for that. I pray, God, that as a church that we'd go back to the initial intent of the law for it to be a wooing effect where it invites us for a better way to live, a way that, to live that avoids so much junk and pressure and misery, God. I pray that it wouldn't be something of a means to earn something. It'd be something that's a means to the best way of living. God, we know that we can only do that through your grace and your mercy. I pray that you keep shaping our hearts to be like yours as it comes to this matter. We commit this to you. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Have a fantastic week in the Lord. If we can pray for you, just stop on up front.